Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. Ahmed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our still very small but growing state. Let me explain. It's a place where, according to new census data, everyone wants to be an ocean stater. Well, not quite. I'm exaggerating, but the state population is on the rise. New census data shows a more than 4% increase in overall population, largely thanks to the increasingly diverse makeup of the state. Rhode Island's Latino and Hispanic population has grown nearly 40% since the last census. The number of Rhode Islanders identifying as Black or Asian has also increased. In contrast, the number of residents identifying as White dropped by more than 8%, reflecting a national trend. See how the population of your town has changed with a new interactive census map available on our website. One hundred and twenty-nine people were exonerated of crimes in the United States last year, meaning they were cleared of their guilt and set free after wrongful convictions. Collectively, they spent over 1,700 years in prison, an average of more than 13 years per person. Many states offer compensation for exonerees who often find it difficult to rebuild their lives. But up until recently, Rhode Island was one of a handful of states that gave exonerees nothing. That has made it hard for people like Scott Hornoff, who served more than six years in prison for a murder he did not commit. Today, my colleague Amanda Milkovitz sits down with Hornoff for a look at a brand new state law which will give money and benefits to those exonerated in Rhode Island. Hornoff was integral to the crafting and passing of the legislation, and he plans to apply for benefits under the law himself. Scott Hornoff joins Globe Rhode Island's Amanda Milkovitz after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. On August 11, 1989, 29-year-old Victoria Cushman was found dead in her apartment in Warwick. Investigators found a letter that she'd written to Warwick police officer 
Jeffrey Scott Hornoff, wanting to continue their affair. He became a suspect in her murder and was convicted in 1996. Few people outside of his family believed him when he said he was innocent. Scott Hornoff served six years, four months, and 18 days in prison before the actual killer came forward and confessed. He was released as an innocent man and has spent the last 18 years advocating for other people who have suffered the same fate. This year, he and the New England Innocence Project won their fight for a state law allowing people exonerated from crimes to apply for compensation. But, as he tells us today, there are still hurdles for people like him. Scott Hornoff, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on your show. So let's go back to the beginning. Tell me about what was going through your mind when you were sentenced to prison, when you knew you were innocent. I was devastated. I still remember my mom slumping into the courtroom bench, just heartbroken. Um, I remember my wife shaking uncontrollably and Vicky's sister clapping and jumping up and down. And my brother, it's still hard to talk about. He, he kept saying, you know what I know. And then when you were released from prison, you had to start all over again and your life was completely different. What was that like? When you're released from prison and you're on parole or probation, you receive all kinds of services. When you're an exoneree in a state that doesn't have a statute that assists exonerees, all you have is what's in your cell block. If your family has passed away or didn't support you, uh, you can have nowhere to go and you can be homeless. It's really difficult. You know, one would think that the state would have some resources available to help you get back on your feet, but you had to build your life piece by piece. What did you have to do? I was fortunate that I did have support from family and friends. Uh, I did see a couple counselors. They diagnosed me with situational depression and PTSD. My brother said, don't be surprised if the Warwick police welcome you back with open arms. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. I had to go to court and file. You know, I had to fight for my job back for reinstatement. There were a lot of obstacles. Um, housing, transportation, seeing my boys, reconnecting with them. It was very challenging. Not only that you had a hard time finding work and connecting with your family. But how did people treat you? Did people see you as an innocent person? There was a lot of support. I was really surprised that people were showing up at my trial attorney's office and leaving $100 bills. Um, but there, were, there was also that element that always think the worst of everybody. And they were getting on talk shows and saying, well, he must have had involvement. He probably, you know, was in cahoots with Todd Berry. Todd Berry being the man who came forward and confessed. And you didn't know him. No. No. When the state police came into the prison with my trial attorney, I thought it was going to be, well, at first I thought it was just going to be my trial attorney because I had told him to release all my files to one of my former partners who wanted to look into the case and believed in my innocence. And when I walked into the room, it was 
the two state police detectives, uh, members of the attorney general's office and my trial attorney. And I thought, what are they going to accuse me of next? And they asked me if I knew anybody by the last name of Barry. I'd never met Todd. And at this point, all of your appeals had been exhausted. You were still being held at the adult correctional institutions. And had you pretty much run out of hope at that point? I really had. I had filed a motion for new trial based on newly discovered evidence. That was denied without even holding the hearing that the Supreme Court ordered. My state appeal was denied. I was the first or one of the first people in Rhode Island to have post-conviction DNA testing. And unfortunately, like in a lot of cases at that time, it came back inconclusive. And each time I I kept feeling a sledgehammer to the gut. It's like, what's it going to take? What I don't belong here, and I don't feel like this is my path. So I would imagine when you got out, you would want to distance yourself from anything to do with prisons, law enforcement, the criminal justice system. But instead, you've embraced it in a very different way. You've made this a mission to fight for other people like yourself. Why? You know, people get on police departments or fire departments or become doctors or lawyers or what have you for different reasons. And I know it's cliche, but one of the reasons I became a police officer was because I wanted to help people. And right now, this is the only way. And there's thousands of innocent people in prison. And for every innocent person in prison, there's more, you know, family and friends that are suffering right along with them. We have 2.3 million people, men, women, and children incarcerated in America right now. So even if 1% or 5% are innocent, that's thousands of people. Yet it took so long for Rhode Island to finally adopt this law. What were some of the hurdles that you had to, to cross over these last couple of years? I found a great representative in Pat Serpa. When I first got out, I had met with my local representative in Cranston, and she didn't seem all that interested in supporting a bill. I didn't really know the procedure. And then um, a former representative for Providence, he tried to generate interest. And when I met Pat Serpa, it was because I had sent her a manila envelope full of information, including compensation laws in other states and about my story, which she said she immediately remembered. And she became the champion of the bill. She was amazing. And then I got the New England Innocence Project and the Innocence Project from New York involved. And they're my heroes. So Scott, this bill will provide $50,000 a year for each year that someone is incarcerated. It also offers some assistance uh, for mental health, um, and for housing, providing everything that you did not find when you were released from prison. How will this help you? This bill will help primarily the compensation aspect as far as the housing and the job training and whatnot. Um, those aren't going to be factors for me, but I'm glad they're going to be for other people. The compensation will help with everyday expenses. Everything's so expensive today. I'm also going to help my children. Um, my son Joshua really wants a house or a condo of his own, so I want to help him with that. 
my daughter Abby is going to be driving soon, so I want to help her find a reliable car. And of course, I'm going to give a little bit back to the Innocence Project. Do you think this final version of the law is going to cover everyone that it should? No. Why? At the last minute, one or more of the senators, uh, this bill had passed the House unanimously for three years in a row. And at the last minute, one or more of the senators introduced language into the bill. Um, One of the requirements is that anyone who had ineffective assistance of counsel at trial will not qualify for this, which is wrong on so many levels. People should not be penalized because they had a bad attorney at trial. And a lot of people have bad attorneys at trial. You've been on the lecture circuit talking openly about your experiences, you know, in detail during the criminal investigation, what that was like being a police officer being investigated by police officers, what it was like being a former police officer being in prison and trying to rebuild your life afterwards. Some of the people you're talking to are actually police officers or students who want to become police officers. What do you hope they're going to take away from your experience? I'm hoping that any tunnel vision that they might have had or any inherent traits of preconceived uh, conclusions are going to be thrown out and that they're going to approach investigations with an open mind instead of trying to make all of the information that they have fit what they believe to be true. And once you had, you were released from prison, it's going to change you in so many ways. What are some of the ways that your life or that your perspective actually in life has changed because of your incarceration? I really appreciate every day being able to walk out the door. Um, It's still overwhelming going to the grocery store with so many choices after having every choice made for you. Um, Even just ice cream. I look at all the different flavors and I usually pick vanilla. You really have a, a greater appreciation for the little things. And it makes me think, if it hadn't been for this stranger, this Todd Berry, who the police didn't even talk to, confessing out of the blue, you'd still be in prison right now. And I know you know this. And is there anything that you wish you could say to him? I was in the courtroom when he was sentenced and he apologized. And I appreciate him coming forward for having that courage because most people don't have that inside of them. What do you think our society owes the innocent? And how can we avoid making mistakes like was done to you? Society can't give back time. And time is our most precious gift. you can give millions of dollars, you can give, you know, a house or whatever else, but it's not going to give somebody back the time, the missed birthdays and baseball games and fishing with your kids. Your children were really young at the time. Yeah, my son Joshua was seven. My son Zachary was five. Jacob was born three months after I went to prison. And Joshua became the man of the house. He was babysitting his brothers when he was seven, eight years old. So when people think that somebody goes to prison and that's it, it's not. 
it's not like throwing one rock into a pond. It's like throwing a handful. A lot of people are affected. Yeah. So when you talk about missed time and lost time, there's no law that can compensate for that. There isn't, but at least with this statute, there's going to be assistance for exonerees when they're released. I don't like that the senators changed it so that exonerees have to go through the Department of Probation and Parole. I had suggested Department of Health or Human Services, and that was in our version, but they changed it, which no exoneree wants to or should have to go back to that prison for any sort of assistance. That's something else I'd like to see changed. Well, Scott, I am so grateful that you've joined us today. It it means a lot. And congratulations on your long overdue success. We'll see you at the signing. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you. That was Amanda Milkovitz talking with Scott Hornoff. Hornoff was exonerated in 2003 after spending more than six years behind bars for a crime he did not commit. Hornoff lives in Delaware now, and he hopes to work on a similar law in his new state. Here are a few other stories you should check out this week from Globe, Rhode Island. Brian Amaral brings us a feature on Carol McKenna. McKenna lost her son Andrew, an Army First Sergeant in Afghanistan, six years ago. She reflects on the loss of her son following President Biden's decision to pull out of Afghanistan and news of the Taliban regaining significant control in that country. Check out my story about a Providence man charged with a full menu of criminal activity. Paul Diogenes is accused of creating a fictitious catering company to obtain more than $830,000 in lobster, sea bass, ribeye steak, even wild boar. When the FBI caught up to him, he allegedly rammed his gray Mercedes into an FBI vehicle and drove at two agents. And finally, Alexa Gigas brings us the latest on the decision to reopen two state-run COVID testing sites this week, along with information on how and where you can get a testing appointment in Rhode Island. Find all these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Got a tip? Have someone you think we should talk to? We'd love to hear your ideas. Send us an email at rinews at globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next Thursday. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. 
Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org slash passport. That's ripbs.org slash passport.